get started with prayer. Um, dear God, we know that you are our children even more than we do. And we know that you are a constant support to us. We ask that you help us rely on you, you be, that we be sensitive to the direction and warnings that you give us. Dear God, be with our beloved Catherine. Give her healing and strength. And dear God, give these parents um, energy and joy and wisdom and peace in your name. Um, I feel the need to give a little bit of a, I guess, explanation. I, I fear that you come to this class, and it's a Sunday school class, but it may often sound more like a child development class. And, I'm, and today, particularly, I've got quotes from two or three studies that I think are significant. I, I think scripture is very clear that we are to love our children. But it doesn't give us very many details on what that looks like. And so my attempt to use the body of knowledge as best it is understood about what impacts children um, is the reason that I go to some of these <coughs> other sources. I hope you don't see that as um, in contrast to scripture. I don't think good science and good understanding of scripture disagree with each other. Now, I think poor science or poor interpretation often butt heads. But I hope this doesn't sound to you like, for instance, several of the studies today, one of the outcomes that they look at is academic success. Well, I don't think academic success um, is the highest goal for Christian parents. But in terms of research, it's often a good measure of if a child is able to use his potential well. So, I don't know, if, if any of that troubles you, please come see me. Um, I want to go back and review just a teeny bit about what we did last week. And I'm going to go back really to way back. Uh, you want to click that first one up? This is a parent, I, I look at different parenting styles that we had in the very first couple of weeks. Okay, um, looking at authoritarian and authoritative. And I keep coming back to that, mainly because I think it's really important and it's verified in research over and over again, but it's also so scriptural. Because the, the reality in this is the authoritarian is basically less respectful on the part of the parent. It's basically less kind. The authoritative is still taking all the responsibility God gave you to be a parent, but it's doing it with gentleness and kindness and intentionality and respect for the child. And if we go down, and I'm not even going to deal with neglect, I don't think we're there, anybody's there, but indulgent, we can label that sweet and kind, but for the most part, when we are indulgent parents, and I'm not talking about just being generous and having a score and those sorts of things, but I'm really talking about when we are not in control, most of the time we're doing that for selfish reasons because it's too hard or too painful or too uncomfortable to be in control, okay? So I really think this is completely aligned with scripture. Now, I promised you these slides, and I promise you, I got them to Laura Nettable. She must be out of the country. I normally get a response from her in five minutes, and I put them 
home. I got them to her Monday or Tuesday of last week, so I'm assuming she's out of the country, but hopefully you'll get them this week uh, if that's something you want to uh, go to. Okay, then last week we also talked about parenting style, and again, I told you to take this with, with a, a grain of salt because this was looking at basically how comfortable you are with the emotions of your child. And I think they take some pretty extreme positions. The, the D and the DA with the dis, dismissing and the disapproval and flip to the next one, Amy. Um, I, again, the EC is the emotion coach, which they thought was positive. The LF is the laissez-faire. Um, that's the idea that the parent hears the emotion but doesn't do anything with it. In other words, you can, oh, I'm so sad, oh, you're so sad. But you just kind of leave the child hanging there. The emotional coach says you accept and affirm the emotion, but then you help him know how to do it. <coughs> All right, let's go up to the next one. These are those three different categories in the next one. Okay, these were steps for emotional coaching, and I felt like I, I got home, I thought we were going to hit a couple of those in the way I want to. Let me, uh, being aware of the child's emotion, and then recognizing the emotion as an opportunity for intimacy and teaching. I had the most interesting experience this week. I pick up um, Amy's Drew from school at 2, and then I pick up Claire at 3, and they're usually at my house for an hour or so until she gets um, through and picks them up. And Claire is in fourth grade, and she was finishing a book that she had been assigned to read. And I was <coughs> in the other room reading a story to Drew, in fact, and in a few minutes she came in and her eyes were kind of big and she said, I just didn't, I didn't expect that. I didn't see it coming. And she said, um, there, there was obviously an emotion there. I would not have identified it as sadness. I said, well, tell me what happened. She said, well, the girl in the book, she died. And in fourth grade, you haven't had very much literature that has a sad ending. It was the story, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the book, but it's the story of a little girl um, <coughs> at, when the bombing of World War II in Japan, and she um, contracts radiation sickness. And there's something about her um, making many of the origami birds. You all may be more familiar with the story than I am, but anyway, um, the end of the book, she goes to sleep, and it says, and she never wakes up. And Claire didn't see it coming. She obviously was disconcerted by it. And she came and sat down beside me, and this is pretty foreign for her. And she just kind of leaned against me and threw her legs over my lap, and I just rubbed her leg. And she just talked. And she didn't cry, but she talked about it. And she talked about, um, she said, it would be, I haven't told you this, she said, it would be okay if I died. And I said, where did this come from? And I said, yes, it would be, because you would go and really thought. But I said, it would be very sad for the rest of us. And she sat there for an uncommonly long period of time. And it wasn't that deep a conversation after that. But it really hit me Emotion is an opportunity for intimacy and teaching. And I thought, how many times have I missed that moment? And again, she, maybe it would have been more obvious to me if she had been sobbing. And I feared that if she had been sobbing, I would have said, oh, it's okay, don't cry. 
well, is that really? I mean, that's the whole point of this. Is that the message that I want to send? That it's not okay to cry when I'm sad? Now, listening empathetically and validating, yes, I understand why you feel sad. It was terribly sad that so many did. <coughs> but then, let's look at that last one, setting limits while helping the child problem solve. And there wasn't a problem for her to solve on this one. Lots of times when they're anger, there is a problem to solve. And setting limits. I don't in any way want this to be perceived as some kind of license for bad behavior. The child is mad and he's stomped around and he's thrown things and yes, he has the emotion and we've labeled the emotion and we're listening. It's not okay to throw things. It's not okay to hit your brother when you're mad. We've still got to set the limits because part of learning how to handle the emotion is to set the limits. We all know what happens to people who don't have limits on their anger and they get angry in the workplace. Fairly often they get demoted or fired. So our goal is to help them and help them problem solve. Problem solving may be as simple to what do you do when you feel so angry? You cannot hit your brother. That's, that's not how we're gonna solve it. And I think we did talk about that for many children, some kind of physical activity. I told you about the little boy at school that would get very angry. And we had to work out a system where he could leave the room and not be in trouble for leaving the room and come to my office so he could walk. Because he, he, he that, that was a way that he could handle his anger. Is some of this making sense? Does that? But it is in this, again, this is, the limits aren't gone here. But it's what are we going to do with that emotion? Questions or comments? I love children's books. Um, sometimes a child is, has a hard time dealing with it at the moment. Um, Rachel, you made a comment I remember once. Yes, about sometimes at the moment you can't talk about it. They're just too agitated. And the younger they are, the more likely that is to be the case. But sometimes you can talk about it later. You know, let's, let's think back. Remember when we got so angry this morning? Is there anything that we could do that would help you when you're so even being able to, I love this one, um, Sophie gets really, really angry. Now Sophie runs, and it's not quite clear that she tells them whether she's gonna go outside and run around. So you may wanna <laughs> add lib a little bit to this. This is nothing more than where's my truck? This is a boy that loses his truck. Um, you know, and it's, it's, the whole book is T-R-U-C-K, so it doesn't make very much sense to a two-year-old. But once children are big enough to know that letters spell something. Um, it, it, but it's, it's just the sadness, and I think it's, really helpful to most of us to feel like that our emotion is validated. I, there are times when I know I get aggravated or frustrated over something, and, it, and I shouldn't. It doesn't make sense, but the feeling is still real. And I really don't want anybody saying to me, well, you shouldn't be mad about that. They may even be right, but that doesn't feel very understanding. We can understand, and once we've affirmed and understood, then I think we can move um, toward helping them uh, handle that emotion appropriate to their age. Okay? All right. Then we moved on 
to self-esteem. I think self-esteem has two components, feeling loved and valued and feeling confident. And we shared a little bit about how does a child know that they're loved. Um, I, I want to do this again. I want to divide maybe three groups over here and two or three groups over there in groups of five or six. You all shared some really, I thought, significant ones last week, but we only had time for two or three. Share with the group either a time when you felt like your child you overlooked or you as a child or what you observe. It doesn't have to be you personally. But let's this is important. This is big. How do how do our children know that they are loved? So five minutes, kind of get in small groups, introduce yourselves. Um <laughs>
clues in that that's what writing is, he's a lot more apt to do it again. And that's the positive reinforcement, but that's also affirming. Yes. I heard one about daddy taking for a date. I love that. I, uh, one of my best friends had five children, and every Tuesday <coughs> night, dad took one child out to eat. Now, I'll admit, I thought sometimes it ought to get to be mom that took the child out to eat. But I love the idea. Their theory was that mother was a stay-at-home mom, and she was there more, and this was an intentional way to get that conversation with dad.
I wanted to play softball and t-ball, and they did not have a league for my age, and they didn't really know what that was. And so he did the research. He didn't know what that was either. So he did the research and figured out the rules and got some guys, other dads from the church, and they started a league, and they none of them knew what it was, and they all figured it out together, and they got a bunch of girls together, and they started a league and coached um, a little girls' team. It was awful, but those little girls' <laughs> well, as, as I understand it, this was not his idea, but that he knew this was something that was important to you. He had always, since I was little, we had always played in the yard. Like, he didn't really know what to do with a girl. <coughs> and so we had always played catch in the yard as our bonding mm-hmm. thing. And um, I took to it more than he expected and wanted to carry on. And then that was a little bit of a shock to him. Um, so Fletcher and I were talking about this in the car because we have a good friend who was um, very willing to spend time with his children but he wanted to spend it doing the activities that he enjoyed. And some of them were great fun. He took his children on some quite elaborate, wonderful hunting and fishing trips and whatever. But he was very unwilling <coughs> to do a few of the things that they really wanted to do. And, and one in particular um, was, this was back when Opryland was thriving and they wanted to go to Opryland. And just, for, he truly never took them to the park. I think they was leaving. I, I think they, I think they perceived that he was using his power to make all the decisions about what we're going to do for fun, and he wasn't honoring their input. Now, again, I know this has to be age appropriate. Your children might well decided they want to go to Disney World every. Uh, spring break, and that might not be in the budget. I, I get that. I'm not suggesting that. But this this listening to what they have to say, noticing and extending effort. Anything else? Did you notice what we didn't know? What we didn't know is evidence and love. Things. Stuff. And I'm not, you know, I, <coughs> I love Christmas and I love I love them to open gifts at Christmas. I'm not saying that stuff can never um, be part of fun and festivities, but um, it's not what typically is how a child knows that he is loved. On a related note, um, just thinking about that, so when we were, wasn't it Christmas when we were all together? And when, I, when my children talk about our Christmas, this past Christmas, I don't know if any of them could actually name what they got from my parents, but they will talk about the multiple hours decathlon that my brother put together for all of us to compete in. Um, and that's what they'll talk about. No, we're gonna do that again next year, right? Like we're gonna, we should add this to it, we should add that to it. And so this, this time, intentional, value them. Yeah. That's the development room. Okay, next one. It's a powerful message to your child that you love and value him and that God with all of his power loves and values you. That's what you're saying to you when you play out with your child. I, um, I do think you make it easier for a child to be, I think a child that is loved 
has an easier time believing in God's love. I, I really do. And, and you're that ambassador. You're the one that loves, but introduces your child to someone that loves even in a way beyond what you're able to love. Just as God's love is unconditional, we try to love our children, that doesn't mean that we're going to love them all the time. Okay? But it does mean that we're going to try to seek our children's good. I don't want you to feel guilty when you get frustrated. <coughs> You're gonna. I, I just. I can just guarantee it. Okay. That that's not bad. That's not being a bad parent. That's being a bad parent. But it's what you do with that frustration. Which I don't want to. I don't forget this. I know that Josh almost always repeats his sermon exactly in second service as he does in first service. But sometimes I know he changes his wording just a little bit. And we were in first service this morning. At the very end, when he was, um, I think, helping us to be more intentional, all in kind of with our lives, he said something about you said to him the other day, Josh, that wasn't your best self as you spoke to Lucas. I'm like, oh my, what a lovely, gentle way for one parent to help another parent be the better parent. That might have been right for you today. That that gentle, it wasn't your best self. It was I can't believe you said that. It was, it was. I loved it. Thank you. Okay? Okay, we've talked about how a child knows his parents love him. Now listen to this one. This is an article that I cut out years ago that I find fascinating. It talks about Generation Me. And um, it says they are self-confident, self-important, and miserable. Um, generation Me has probably been the most um, wanted generation of children because of the availability of abortion and birth control. Most, many, many more children were planned children. But they were sent to school at a time that we were terribly concerned about self-esteem some teachers were told they should throw away their red pants because it made children feel bad to have something marked wrong on their paper. Um, and this author concludes that this generation has gone through life feeling as if the world um, <coughs> revolves around it because, frankly, for most of their lives, it has. They think they're too good for menial jobs, and even if they're interviewing for a white-collar job, she says, they're ambitiously already eyeing the vice presidency. They want to make an impact on society. They've got high goals. They want to do something fulfilling, but they're notoriously impatient and won't hesitate to quit if a given job doesn't live up to expectations. And so they cruise through life just fine until they hit a brick wall. They don't get in their first college of choice or the dream job that they were sure was going to be theirs. They either don't get or it turns out not to be so dreamy. And she talks about disappointment turns to disillusionment, which can turn to depression. Now, I think that's real. I think there are cycles in child rearing, um, or at least I think they're trends. Maybe trend is a better word than cycle. Um, my parents lived through the Depression. 
Um, and so they saved money. You, it was made worse by the fact that my dad grew up on a farm. And on a farm, you never know what the season's going to be. So you may not have any crops at all next year. So you got to save to be sure that you're okay when the crops don't come in. Or maybe the crops don't come in for a couple of years. And so he was really big on preparing for the future. Um, hard work was such a bad And because that led to the bad depression, just having a job was important. I think my father's job was fulfilling to him. But I think the primary thing is that job provided for family. And you stuck with the job no matter what. And I think there was much more children were kind of part of the family, but they weren't the center of the family. I, I know my parents loved me, but I don't <coughs> think when they looked in terms of their, their responsibilities to me, I don't think my being happy was on that list. Now, they, they loved me, and so it was wonderful when I was happy, and they certainly did some things to make me happy, but they saw their job as to teach me to be responsible and to teach me to be hardworking and to teach me to, to be responsible and all of those sorts of things. They weren't, as a generation, very affectionate. They weren't very comfortable with emotions. And then, oh, and they were pretty rigid about matters of faith. And then my generation came along, and I'm a whole, I'm an age of your parents, maybe the age of some of your grandparents. Um, my generation came along <coughs> and we were going to correct the mistakes that they had made and because they weren't real affectionate and, and they were way too rigid, many of my generation threw out church, at least formally, um, and some of them came back to it, but that, they threw that out because it had been done so badly. And we did tend to become much more permissive and much more in tune with feelings and much more let's make everybody happy, okay? And your results are going to be really different if you have happiness as a primary goal. I do think happiness needs to be in there. I'm not, I, I'm not saying let's throw it out. But if you're saying primary, we're going to be happy, then you're going to avoid failure. And the dilemma is it takes a little toughness for it to all work. Okay, go back to that one. Does this mean that love is not enough? These kids were loved. That generation was loved. Does it mean love is not enough? I would argue with you it's how we define love. <coughs> if love is just sweet affection and care, I think it requires a certain kind of toughness. The unselfishness on the parent's part to do what is really good for a child. And that doesn't always mean it's fun. Okay. You can't give confidence to your children. You can give them love. But you can't they've got to earn it. But you can provide opportunities for them to earn it. Now, I'm going to jump a little bit ahead, but I think there is a God 
God-given desire in all children to do something and take care of something and be independent. I think that's how they're wired. And it's very satisfying when they can. You know, that child, when, when they finally learn to go back and forth so that they can walk a little bit, they are proud of themselves. I love kindergarten first grade because they learn to read. And it's like this whole world that everybody else participated in that they couldn't, they now can. And they'll say, oh, I know what that says. And I can, I can read the, the label on the, 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 the um, mini weeds on the box. It is so empowering because I think that's how they're wired. That's competency. It's very satisfying. If you continue to do something for your child that he can do for himself, you rob him of that opportunity. Um, I will make many references for my time as a principal, but there was a fourth grade teacher that was known for being a little bit stern. She had a really sweet group of children. They were, they were just kind and good to each other and fun and got along well. <laughs> they were the most disorganized. Maybe lazy was too strong a word, but they just, again, sweet and fun. You'd love them, but they just couldn't get it together. And again, all of this is age appropriate. You don't expect them to get together in fourth grade the same way you would in eighth grade. Oh, but middle school teachers say eighth grade is fine. It's turned to mush for that year, so maybe they didn't do it as well in fourth grade. But anyway, <laughs> one day, just as a writing exercise, she said, I want you to take out a piece of paper and list the <coughs> chores that you do at home. And we're going to choose one of these and we're going to write about it. Is this not interesting? They had not had much expectation. And so they hadn't learned to do things at home, and they hadn't learned to do those kind of responsible things at school. And so these really wonderful children needed a little bit of a readjustment to be all that they could do because Mama had been doing it for them. <laughs> I had was talking in depth to a mother because the child really was struggling just to keep up with kind of the normal things. And, and we all forget. I'm not talking about leaving your lunchbox at home occasionally, but <coughs> if you never know, yeah, yeah, we, we had this last week with a child. Um, but if you never know where your lunchbox is, that might be indicative. And I remember saying, well, this was a child in second grade, so he's sitting right here, so I said, you know, let him pack his backpack the night before. And you can check it to make sure he's he should pack his backpack. Is this giving some It had never occurred to her that a seven or eight year old could pack his backpack. Now, I, I may have already said this in class. For those of you who have a six year old, you are 10 years away from your driver's license. Okay? And that is independence in a, yeah, yeah, it is. It's, I, I want to do that. I want to scare you just a little bit because now is the time to teach the skills and the responsibilities and the competencies that let you be at peace when he takes the keys and drives it. Mm -hmm. I 
questions? Oh, I'm sorry. Time is up. Okay, no idea. We will pick up with this next week. Yeah, help you feel better is when you do it. But then if she's not willing to go there, 
Sometimes it's it, she sees that as more as a game is when I say try to look at daddy. So if I spank her after she's doing something, she immediately then look, realizes it clicks. Well, wait a minute, I'm doing something wrong. And then I'm able to talk to her. But it gets her attention when I do that. But then again, I don't want to be spanking her all the time. You don't, you don't. So it's, but and it's, that's my. And, then, and she's still at that stage where you're right, it is hard to get her attention. I'm not going to make you feel mad about it. I do think you want to work toward right. a different way of having her focus, just because I think mean, if, if you're going to spank you, would say for some pretty big things. Right. Um, but yeah, she's still at that age where it's really, really hard. And and she's just now learning, even not, no, and don't do yeah. that. 
and it's not realistic to expect that she's going to have really good control. Because if, if I tell her, I says you're going to get in trouble, that gets her attention. If yeah. you say the word trouble. Well, and then that's then a wonderful, that's, you can use something like yeah. that kind of as your signal. Yeah, sometimes if you say you're going to get in trouble, she'll immediately start crying. I mean, it's almost worse than like yeah. doing anything, right. uh, you know. Well, and again, you'll want to use that carefully if that's yeah. the case. But that is a, and that's almost like a code word. <laughs> it is. Yeah. But this, this is uh, this is what serious. Yeah, this is. Because she's, she gets up out of her bed four or five times, even through the night. And I eventually just go in there and say, if you get out of your bed, you're going to get in trouble. What happens when you get in trouble? She goes spanky or passy bye bye. Yeah. So we, we've learned to do that. But then again, it's like every once in a while, I, I even though I feel bad about it, feel like I have to punish her like with a spanking just because I can't just say she's making trouble. I gotta prove it. Yeah. If you if you say that, you yeah. got the ball. So. <laughs> you, you do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I I'm on your side on that. I really am. I absolutely am. All right. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Oh, I, I hope so. I worry that I, you all are so sweet to spend so much time. We do. We enjoy it. I just, I, you're, you were on a roll, and I didn't want to interrupt. Oh, but please do interrupt. <laughs> I will be honest, because I've taught this class before. Some of the very best things that have happened have been because somebody did interrupt or made a comment. <laughs> oh, because very often there are three others that are kind of thinking the same kind of thing, yeah. and it just helps them if you voice it. Okay? <laughs> Thank you.